Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on what is beautiful science and I came across this topic because of an article written by Philip Ball in the Nautilus magazine on what is a beautiful experiment and it's interesting because beauty as pointed out by Philip Ball is more spoken today by scientists than by artists and artists they oftentimes don't want to be associated with this word, perhaps due to their motivation of being more alternative. And they also are untrustworthy of the word, which I think is interesting. Whereas scientists now, they often call theories beautiful as well as experiments. And for me, this raises several, several different issues and topics, starting off with, I find it interesting that contemporary artists are skeptical of the word and potentially this is something scientists should take into account as bias and like not everything that is beautiful is truth or is meant to be beautiful and maybe we overinterpret when we do see something that is beautiful we do want the results to match more closely what would make a beautiful theory yeah i find this so fascinating and two things mm -hmm. firstly to me it seems like maybe artists question what beauty is more. That's their purpose through art. Whereas scientists look for beauty mm -hmm. through studying things from different perspectives. And then it made me question, maybe art used to be like this? Maybe art used to be more about beauty and now art is more about questioning and probing. And maybe art also used to be more biased in a way. Um, that you described scientists may be influenced by this beauty and that leads to bias. So um, I just wanted to highlight like maybe the in terms of the time scales, science will eventually become like modern art is. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah, and I like the use of your word that artists now dissect and question what beauty is because this was a criticism that has been pointed about whether or not by vivisecting and by dissecting the potential beauty in science, we're killing it as well. But isn't that what science does as well? We do dissect things, we do analyze it and quantify it. So perhaps dissecting things doesn't kill the beauty in the same way that it, it would kill the test subject, the animal. Oh, love that. <laughs> love that little comparison. Um bringing in the harshness of science by bringing in <laughs> the use of animals yeah. always. It's true. Yeah, it is. Um, but okay, I think we need to define beauty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not bold enough to define it. I don't think I can. Oh gosh. Okay, I thought you would have a definition because no. I haven't thought about this. No, enough. no, but I think that, I think beauty can mean a lot of things. So for a lot of scientists, beauty means simplicity and beauty means <gasps> truth. <laughs> Go on. I I would think that for a lot of scientists, beauty means complexity. Mm. I think for me, beauty means complexity because it makes you want to observe it and analyze it and go deeper. Yeah. 
I see the point you're making, but don't you think scientists also, the most quote-unquote beautiful experiments that have been praised by other scientists are always experiments that simply show and reveal something fundamental about nature and how it works. Yeah, right. So in terms of scientific approach, and we're going to talk about this more throughout the episode, approach and experimental design, Mm -hmm. yes, I agree, beauty is simplicity, but I think it's the the beauty lies in the ability to capture complexity through a simple manner, like a simple experiment that targets just this aspect of something and answers all of these questions mm-hmm. about a complex matter. Interesting. I do agree what you mean in terms of complexity, in the sense that it is also often said that what makes science beautiful is the fact that the question that it solves and answers then leads to grander results. So basically, it's almost like the result is exponential to just simply a summation. And that potentially beautiful science is science that is done within our time with the resources that we have. But I also think that's counterintuitive because then the science that is long-lasting and the scientists that we do remember are always experimentalists that were outside of their time. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, with the resources they had, they didn't answer questions that were, I guess, meant to be answerable in their times, but that they're still present today. Like Hodgkin and Huxley's experiments with the action potential, it was revolutionary in the sense that the tools that they had answered questions that today we are still understanding. And like Einstein's theory of general relativity, he was leaps and bounds beyond the minds of his time. Yes, I agree. And those are two beautiful examples. (laughs) Um, But... That's from our perspective looking back. Mm-hmm. So, because I was thinking, looking even further back, the most famous neuroscientist is mm-hmm. Santiago Ramon y Cajal. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't actually know that much about how he came to his conclusions because I feel like, so he predicted a lot about how the brain works that turned out to be true. Like he, we spoke about this in our episode on synapses. He was sort of the first person to propose that neurons are individual units and they connect to each other, which is basically what synapses are. And he, he made a lot of observations about the structures of neurons and did these beautiful drawings and whatnot. And so now looking back, everyone thinks his approach was beautiful, but I feel like a lot of what he said was actually semi-intuitive. Like, it wasn't very evidence-based, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, because of the limited tools that people had back in the day. Yeah. So it's also a matter of perspective in terms of time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the same with art. I mean, we all know a lot of famous artists were not famous at all during their lives, lifetimes, only retrospectively mm-hmm. afterwards. Yeah, and I think this can also bring us to the topic of whether the beauty and the science is in the in the creative ideas and in the creating the hypothesis more so than everything else like there's there's three different points where i think you can attribute beauty to either the idea and the hypothesis the methodology carrying out the experiment and third the outcome yeah and i think there is way more emphasis on firstly the idea then the methodology And then the outcome is almost like an after the fact. And there are scientists and physicists that do claim that 
that it's not worthwhile sacrificing a beautiful theory for the truth of the fact, which I think is very counterintuitive and definitely not how you should be doing science. <laughs> That's definitely a good example of how beauty can lead to bias. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, there is this dissonance, right? Because the scientific approach is, is very clear how things should be done. And, but we're human after all, and then beauty gets in the way, right? Mm -hmm. um, I personally think for these three attributes, the theory or hypothesis, the experiment or methodology, and the outcome, the beauty in, of these three can be very separate. Mm -hmm. And I agree that like, like you might have a beautiful theory, a, a horrible experiment, <laughs> and um, an unappealing outcome, and like, you know you can mix and match for those three. Yeah. But I think that in science, there's way more emphasis on, on the first two rather than the outcome. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel people are, because, because so much emphasis in science is actually put on, like, planning experiments and what questions we can further find. Actually, I feel the least emphasis is put on the findings. Yeah. Like, of course, there is emphasis put on the findings, but it's just like a... A, a more practical approach like okay so they found this okay what can we use how can we use this information to come up with a new hypothesis mm -hmm. you know yeah I definitely agree with you that there's that emphasis on the question um it's also because we know that's what we can we can't control and I think having a good understanding of that is mm -hmm. also a key to the scientific approach like you have to accept all outcomes regardless. You can't be prioritizing beauty when it comes to the outcome. As you mentioned, that leads to bias. Yeah. So um, we need to, to stick to the scientific approach. We need to put mm -hmm. little emphasis on the outcome and just accept whatever it is and then find the beauty in the next question, the next theory. Yeah, and I think that also raises, like you said, the question of beauty and what is beauty and maybe maybe the outcome is intrinsically beautiful simply for the fact that you are discovering truth, which mm -hmm. brings me back to that point whether beauty is truth. I think it's difficult to answer because... I don't think truth. What is truth? Yeah, what is truth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so there can either be logical truths, philosophical truths, experimental truths, but then I think I'm more comfortable with like a logical or philosophical truth because it's almost like just maths. But with experimental truths, I think there's so much that goes into... You know, we need to take into account the limitations and the challenges with all of our experiments. Like, the conclusion we are reaching is not necessarily truths, but simply what we can deduce from the information we have with the tools we have. Yeah, so an empirical approach is just observation-based conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't really believe in truth. Like, I don't think that's a, a beneficial way to approach life, I guess, <laughs> for anyone. Um, because, yeah, like, science and philosophy are the same in that they're all a debate, mm -hmm. and you're essentially just trying to argue for something based on the evidence that you have. Mm -hmm. um, so nothing is true. I guess this could lead us to also talk about, like, how should you approach a hypothesis? Should you try to falsify it, or should you mm -hmm. try to prove it? Yeah. Um, but the fact that there's those two approaches as well, it highlights that, yeah, it's all subject to debate and it's all evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And so truth is a separate thing and nothing is really true because everything is influenced by your perspective. Your evidence is always provided through usually one means, like looking under a microscope or looking at an animal or 
logic, mm-hmm. like for philosophy, a number of premises, or whatever. Like there's different ways of knowing things, and no matter which way you're using to know something, I think they're all equally untrue. And so I also think I love that. <laughs> um, I also think beauty isn't truth, and for that, it's because of subjectivity. Uh-huh. And knowledge is equally as subjective. I'm getting myself into such a rabbit hole here, but no. I didn't even know I had these thoughts. <laughs> like, I'm just finding them out now. No. <laughs> I'm bringing them out of you. Yeah. Okay. Let's maybe. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Let's maybe deviate the rabbit hole a bit more into. Um, there was Pierre Duhem, which is a French physicist, said that experiments may be seen as embodied hypotheses. And I find this really interesting mm-hmm. um, about, I guess, the function of an experiment and whether the function of the experiment is to translate efficiently and ambiguously the hypothesis. So basically translating the idea of the hypothesis into an outcome, like a measurable outcome. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, I do like that. And it's especially true in neuroscience, right? Because mm-hmm. hypotheses can be so dissociated from experiments. Yeah. Specifically, like, if you're doing research related to neural circuits and behavior, because, like, we're just assuming that neural circuits translate to behavior, which is still up to very much debate but Mm -hmm. I guess the point of the experiment would be to sort of translate those two ideas yeah yeah and so maybe in the sense what is beautiful about the experiment is whether or not it can efficiently translate and I do like this topic because in terms of linguistics I do think there's this challenge of translating like Portuguese to English or Spanish to Russian and that a lot of information is lost lost in translation yeah yeah and so could this mean that beauty simply means clarity and ambiguity and consolidation of information transfer but then I also find this a little bit counterintuitive because, and maybe this isn't necessarily beautiful, but in terms of like our human relations and how we deal with the world and stimuli, it is the ambiguous and uncertain stimuli that triggers our dopamine and keeps us in like a dopamine loop. Um, And so could you argue that maybe it is the ambiguous and uncertainty of life that not only triggers our dopamine, but then potentially allows us to see things in a more rose-tinted glasses and then find certain things more beautiful simply because they invoke these hormones in us. Mm. This is so Inception because (laughs) it's like thinking about science and then thinking about our approach to science as human beings and then thinking about how our brains work and it's just, yeah, a lot. But I think this actually links really well to what we were saying about complexity and simplicity Mm -hmm. because ambiguous and uncertain things mm-hmm. are complex things right yeah and then things that have a lot of clarity and unambiguity are simple and related to dopamine like the classical mm-hmm. dopamine loop hedonic wheel like theory hypothesis based on the idea that our dopamine levels actually peak before you get the yeah, reward exactly right? yeah and so it's like chasing complexity that's what keeps us alive and thriving Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then gaining simplicity at the end is somehow also necessary yeah like you know because otherwise we would go insane if it's just all unambiguous yeah exactly like we still need a line to follow Mm -hmm. to lead from idea to idea yeah i was gonna say that encounter to the argument that i just made for ambiguity is that perhaps it is the clarity 
and an ambiguity that will then lead to peace and calm and appreciate the the simplicity of the complexity, you know? Yeah, but I think this also links to a quote by Frank Wilczek, who suggested beauty in a scientific idea becomes manifest when you get out more than you put in. So it's basically the idea that you find something unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I think this happens more often than not. And that is also the beauty of science, because although we have clear hypotheses, right, as scientists, you're always hoping that, well, I guess you are hoping that you can prove the hypothesis, but a part of you is also hoping that you'll just find something unexpected, right? Because equally, both outcomes would be as beautiful, exciting, novel, yeah. Yeah, and also, like, unfortunately, we do have this problem, though, in modern science of Mm -hmm. always valuing positive data and not negative data yeah but I think it's important to also like fully embrace whatever outcome you get because it's always informative yeah the only disappointment is whether or not you've waited wasted like time and resources into studying the wrong question yeah and also validifying your experiments and making sure that the results you get are truly what you are measuring yeah um so Francis Bacon implied famously, that experiments uh, subject nature to a degree of coercion, whereas Einstein looked at it more as an elegant experiment to be more of a collaboration with nature to uncover something deeply hidden. And I, I like this way of thinking of it in that it's like a dance, like a tango with nature, and you're not bending it against its will, you are uncovering and collaborating. And I, I much prefer this way of viewing science, and I guess for me this would definitely I would consider this beautiful science when we are able to work with nature. Yeah, I definitely agree and I think it's important to like keep in mind that as scientists that's what you're always doing no matter what field you're in you are studying nature mm-hmm. um, whether you're looking at an atom or a protein or an organism you're like scrutinizing basically nature and trying to understand it and like having respect for all the unexpected things that you could find is really important for me. Absolutely. And I just wanted to talk about a specific experiment, which is famously called the most beautiful experiment. And it's an experiment by Messelson Stahl. And they were focusing on uncovering how DNA copies itself and how information is inherited. And there were three different theories. One was the conservative theory where the parent's DNA helix is copied in its entirety. The second one was uh, dispersive, where, where DNA is chopped up into pieces and then these pieces are copied. And then the third, which is the semi-conservative theory, where the double-stranded DNA separate from their helix and makes a copy of itself. And then the new cells contain one strand from the parent and one which is newly synthesized. And the way that they did this is DNA contains nitrogen and it's a key part of its structure and they basically put these bacteria in a heavy nitrogen environment, 15N, and what happened was the DNA then became heavy and it had this heavy nitrogen. So when placed in a centrifuge, the centrifuge would draw all of the heavy parts, heavy DNA near the bottom and then they put these same cells into another environment that had light nitrogen, 14N, and then after one generation of cell division, they placed the DNA again in centrifuge, 
and it showed that the density of the DNA was composed with half heavy nitrogen and half light nitrogen, which ruled out the theory of conserved DNA. And then they kept doing this experiment, and as the cells continued to divide, continuing in the lighter environment, they saw that the DNA was getting progressively lighter, which then showed that it is the semi-conservative theory that makes sense. And I think it is, DNA is incredibly complex, but they may managed to find a way to very simply demonstrate how the information was getting carried down and across the generations. And so this shows the beauty of the experiment, but also an additional element to this is that no one expected the structure of DNA itself to also so clearly demonstrate in the way that it separates uh, the alpha helis and passes down the DNA. So it's almost like the answer was staring at us in the face, but it took this simple but beautiful experiment to then show the complexity, but also the simplicity of the structure-function relationship of the structure of DNA within the function of carrying down information in this semi-conservative way. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And yeah, I think it highlights that for in terms of judging how beautiful a study or experiment is, for me, it's how like ingenious the approach is. Mm -hmm. Because and it's this is linked to what I was saying about like respecting mm -hmm. what nature could potentially surprise you with. Because yeah. You have to also, like, a part of it is saying, realizing we are humans, like, we are a part of nature. We have limited ways to see our worlds that are biased and subjective, and we have limited tools which are being developed, but how can we use, utilize our little place in this universe to look at things that are beyond us? And then ingenious approaches like this come about and... It's usually like the more indirect ways of probing something that is more beautiful because it's seemingly simple as well. Like when you look retrospectively, it always seems like, oh, why did not no one think about that? Mm -hmm. But to come up with that idea is so challenging because we have to really like step out of ourselves yeah. and realize that, oh, like to understand the structure of something, maybe you don't need to just take an image of it, even though we are visual creatures. Yeah. Um, like there's other ways, like looking at the, the bonding with nitrogen or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do think that it is an advantage when we do collaborate with nature and we do use what nature has given us. And, and then the challenge is then to just to conceptualize an experiment that can really hit the head of the nail in terms of like exactly what you want to test mm -hmm. and so I think another experiment that showcases this is Ernest Rutherford's study on alpha particles. Rutherford had a, a hypothesis that the atom had a nucleus in the center and because before you had the plum pudding model where mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah where you had like the neutrons and electrons and protons scattered about but now Rutherford had this theory that the nucleus is in the center so he would shoot alpha particles at a gold foil and these alpha particles then scattered backwards revealing that indeed the atom had a dense core at the center that was a simple experiment but also I guess aesthetically beautiful because they did use yeah. gold foil 
<laughs> they used gold, not silver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know much about physics research, but mm-hmm. like the little that I have heard from friends or whatever yeah. is like the way that they approach studying those things is always like very much less direct than in biology because you have to find less direct ways to probe at things you that may or may not exist, like dark matter or mm-hmm. black holes or whatever. Yeah, and so I think yeah, some of those like ideas which I unfortunately don't know the details about but they can be such beautiful experiments because they just like shoot electrons at things or whatever I probably said that so wrong if there are any physicists listening Mm -hmm. like I'm so sorry but (laughs) like I definitely see how that can be Mm -hmm. yeah there's like beauty in a in a in a indirect approach yeah that brings me to a topic I actually wanted to talk about um, about applied science versus theoretical science mm-hmm. and this was inspired on a conversation I was having with a friend recently and her undergrad was in maths and um, my brother he's also studying physics and I noticed that with people that study maths or physics they have such a black and white way <laughs> no they do they have such a black and white way of abstracting information right. they need everything to be defined and they need everything to be explicit and only then they are satisfied with being like oh yeah a plus b equals c it's the same with philosophy though isn't it yeah that's true because i think something that angered me so much when i studied philosophy was that you have your premises a is this b is this therefore c is this Mm -hmm. but you literally are ignoring everything else just for the purpose of making this argument. Yeah, like in a thought experiment and stuff. Yeah, and like, yes, I get that the point is then for other people to come in with their arguments and then you have to find ways to defend it. Yeah. But, uh, like, I really found that that sort of reductionist approach a bit too much. I, I see what you're saying, but I do still think that, like, think of a thought experiment more as, like, a system. And you still need to ha- have the limitations within the system in order to be able to, like, measure them. And you, you take those into account of course a thought a thought experiment isn't perfect but these are the rules we have in the system you can think of it mm-hmm. these are the tools we have to measure the specific thing so according to these rules according to this assumption this is what we can extrapolate from it and another thing that i think makes physics and maths slightly different from philosophy is sure you may have premise a premise b conclusion c but you do still have like a lot of different theories that counter so like for example in ethics you can have utilitarianism aristotelian ethics and yeah etc but actually so what i do find interesting in terms of the difference between applied science and theoretical science is that with applied science there's such an emphasis on i think taking it very literal what you see on the page and you can only uh, extrapolate meaning from what is very very extensively tested and and worked out and you explain all your steps etc whereas in in sorry in theoretical science i mean whereas in applied science we are taught to so we do the experiment and then we get data and then we need to extrapolate meaning from this data we need to infer we need to be creative mm-hmm. so many times i'm i'm sitting in lab meetings or talks and they show a chart and and they're like yes and this means reward happens at this time and this and that and i'm like how are you looking at that? And this is the whole, like extrapolating so much meaning from this. But that's my favorite part. But you have to look at it with so much hesitation. Mm-hmm. Like you have to say everything knowing that it's probably not true. Or like, yeah. which is why I say like truth doesn't exist. Yeah. Because you need to also be that open-minded to like come up with a conclusion based on the data that yeah. is the most valid. You need to discuss it. And I understand. And I think that's something I'm still working towards as a scientist 
who works in the life science and I'm counting that as applied science in terms of the arguments that I'm making. But what I do notice in my friends that then do physics or maths is that they get really frustrated with me and other scientists that do this extrapolating, but maybe in our day-to-day lives. But that makes sense because because you're relying on experimental data and there's so many limitations mm-hmm. that you would just reach a dead end if you didn't extrapolate anything. Exactly. So you have to extrapolate the most that you can in order to continue the loop of a new experiment answering the next best question, a new experiment answering the next best question, until you come to the most solid conclusion. Yeah. And then that's why also, like, what I don't understand why... Well, I guess I understand why, because poor science communication in this world, Mm -hmm. but, like, people should know... Like, non-scientists have to know that science is just a huge debate. It's not mm. facts. It's yeah. not like a collection of facts. Yeah. It's all subjective to debate. And scientists also rely on each other. Like, when there's a lab and they prove the opposite of what you've proved, yes, it's disappointing. Yeah. And, like, you wish that that didn't happen. And then you question their research and you mm-hmm. really go read up about what techniques did they use? Why Why is it different? Yeah. But it's also useful, right? Because mm-hmm. we need each other to validate our ideas. Yes, absolutely. I also, I just find it interesting, as we've spoken about on our episode on planes of scientific understanding, how our academic education can really shape the way that we perceive the world. And I just find it really interesting, this difference. They're both sciences, but one very much pushes your creative side. You have to infer, you have to extrapolate meaning, whereas the other one is a very literal side and very mathematical. And I think mathematical approaches also are, can be really creative, though. Of course. But, like, at a different Way. time point of the process. Mm-hmm. Like, more in the beginning when you're coming up with a way to... If you're trying to, like, solve an equation, you have to be creative, right? Yeah. You, like, a complex uh, equation. Or to come up with an equation to explain something, you have to be really creative. But the outcome, yeah. the outcome is set. And if it's wrong, it's because you did something wrong. Like, because mm-hmm. the logic doesn't match yeah but in science like if it's wrong it could be it could be so many things like because your experiment was biased but but yeah what you were saying earlier about how there's this challenge within the scientific community of validating each other and making sure that you know okay but why wasn't the experiment replicable was it you know was it the fault of the sample or was it the fault of the equipment etc and i do think something that happens in science is Sometimes the theory that does triumph is simply the ones that are better at presenting their case, which Mm -hmm. I definitely think is quite harmful. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, this goes into, I think, that thing of that fallacy of wanting to accept a wrong conclusion simply because it's the most elegant one. Yeah. It's also unfortunate that we're then biased by the actual people who carried out the experiment, Mm -hmm. what institution or organization they're from, and little social things like that also influences what the whole world thinks about the science, right? Yeah, that's very true. There's a lot of challenges with constructing a good question, a good experiment, um, and I think staying away from pathological science where you simply want to accept the, um, the conclusion due to its beauty, and so I guess staying away from those fallacies. So I think the most important thing I concluded from today's episode is like the difficulty in balancing beauty and balancing beauty with scientific approach 
in order to avoid bias, like, because it can be so motivating for science and it can be really useful, but mm-hmm. it can also potentially lead to bias, um, which is something I hadn't really thought about before. So, yeah. With that, I think we'll wrap up today's episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do let us know what you think makes science beautiful, what is a beautiful experiment, and if you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to share with your friends, family. Um, If you would like to see all the resources of things we've referenced in today's episode, then be sure to check out our website, neuroversepod.com, where we post all of the show notes to our episodes. Thanks for listening.